0: here at Forest Park, thank you for joining us. For those of you watching online, thanks for tuning in. Uh, My name is Preston Waller. I have the distinct privilege of being able to lead our student ministry here at Forest Park Church. I'm blessed to be able to, on a two times a month basis, pour into the lives of young people in this area, in this community. I um, want to say thank you, especially for being here on Sunday. We appreciate you every Sunday you come, but maybe more so on the Sunday after Easter, because I mean, people are still on vacations, they're still tuning in, they're kind of still trying to recover so that you would make this a part of your Sunday. We really appreciate that. Um, Pastor Scott's out of town today and we're just really uh, blessed that we be, are able to start a new series that we're going to enter into today. So I have the honor of being able to bring the first part of the message this morning. I'm really excited about it because it's something that I've been praying about and and seeking God about for the past year what we'll talk about today is really what's been on my heart for about a year now so I'm really excited to jump into it we're starting a series entitled fresh faith this is a six-week series that will go all the way through May I know Wow six weeks oh my gosh so long we're so excited about it this is um, really out of the heart of what we're feeling as pastors right now for our people if you have been at Forest Park over the past two years, since the pandemic, you, you would know that we've really tried to hone in on what the pandemic has done to us as a society, how it's kind of affected our mental health, how it's affected our emotional health, how even our physical health some has gone down and our relationships have been affected. And I think we've done a good job of covering that over the last two years. However, one of the things I think we're skipping over that I want to address today is how do we regain our spiritual health? How do we get back to a place of fresh faith? One of the core values we have here at Forest Park, you'll see them all over the wooden plaques in the hallway in the lobby. One of them that's actually in the hallway right there says growing people change. And that's what this series is about. If we want to grow our faith, if we want fresh faith, we have to be willing to change and adapt and push forward. So this fresh faith mantra really goes back to, man, what was it like when our, our faith felt easier, right? When we, we, when we didn't question things as much, maybe when we were a teenager and didn't know any better, when we felt like coming to church was an easy thing to do, when reading our Bible simply just came natural or prayer didn't seem so much of a hassle, back to those times in our life where our faith was thriving, it was growing. How do we get back to that? Well, if we're going to get back to that, one of the things we have to understand is what is fresh faith? Really, what, what is fresh faith? if uh, you know me many of you i don't think do but i love to watch a lot of cooking shows and it's so ironic because i can't cook at all so someone who can't cook at all watches all these cooking competitions and shows and i'm just always intrigued by it because i think it's so cool how they put these ingredients together Um, one of the shows that i really love is called kitchen nightmares by gordon ramsay Uh, many of you may know that maybe you don't i'm sure many of you know who gordon ramsay is if not just google him probably the, one of the best chefs in the world. He has this TV show called Kitchen Nightmares and what he does is he picks businesses or restaurants rather that are kind of on the, on the down slope. They're about to close their door, they're about to go bankrupt. And what he does is he enters into about a two week partnership with this business and helps the owners kind of get back on track, try to get things back to the way it can thrive and grow and be a successful restaurant. It's always funny because it kind of always starts the same way, he enters the restaurant, one of the things he always does before he works with the owners is he kind of comes and eats a lunch at their restaurant. He wants to see what kind of food they're serving and what really is the problem. And he'll always sit down for lunch and he'll ask the waiter, uh, you know, how would you rate the food on a scale of one to 10? And the waiter always says, it's a 10. The 10 is the best food in the world. This is a perfect place to eat. And Gordon will say, okay, I want the lasagna. And he'll always ask the waiter, is your lasagna or is your food fresh? Is it homemade? And the waiter will always say, yes, the food's homemade. We make our lasagna homemade here at the restaurant. Okay, I want that. Then it comes out and he eats it. and He spits it out and he's like, this is rubbish. Like, why would you feed this to a human being? This is like dog food. This is the worst lasagna I've ever had in my life. And he always goes back in the kitchen because he wants to see the sanitary aspects of the restaurant and he'll go into the freezer section and pull out piles and piles of frozen lasagna. And he'll always ask the owner, I was told you make your lasagna fresh, but it's frozen. And they always say, well, it's fresh frozen, which is completely opposite to each other, right? They say, well, we made the lasagna fresh homemade a week ago, but because no one bought it, we had to freeze it. Well, now it's no longer fresh. And I think that goes back to what I'm talking about with fresh face. Some of our Faith was fresh at one point, but because of things that have happened in our life and our world, we've kind of had to put our faith on the back burner, put it in the freezer and handle what's in front of us right here, right now. So the pandemic moved our mindset from an idea of wanting to thrive to saying, I just need to survive right now. And I believe as a church, as a nation, it's time for us to begin to thrive again and grow again and not just try to survive day to day, week to week. And if we're gonna do that, we need real fresh, Faith, not fresh frozen faith. And the number one way that we're gonna have fresh faith is by diving in over the next six weeks into one topic that the Bible covers. And I'm gonna explain a lot of it today. And that topic is the kingdom of God. Now, when I say the kingdom of God, it may confuse you. And I, I wanna talk about it in detail, so it's a little bit more applicable to you today. But what, if we look at Jesus's life, what was Jesus truly killed for, right? Jesus healed people but he wasn't killed for that. Jesus fed people, but he wasn't killed for that. Jesus befriended the marginalized, the social outcasts, the the hurting, the broken, but he wasn't killed for that. Jesus even healed and helped and befriended and worked with and prayed over widows and orphans and the hurting, but he wasn't killed for that. Jesus was killed because of his preaching and teaching specifically on the kingdom of God. In fact, if you look at Jesus' three-year earthly ministry, he preached on a variety of topics, but he preached on three topics more than any other thing in the world. Number one, by far, he taught on the kingdom of God more than any other topic in the Bible. He also taught number two and three are kind of interchangeable. He talked a lot about money and he talked a lot about hell. So if I put kingdom of God, money and hell as three options on the screen and said, hey, you guys get to pick over the next six weeks, which topic do you want to cover? I guarantee you money and hell are not number one. So I'm picking the lesser than evils if you wanna look at it that way. So we're talking about the kingdom of God and how it relates to creating a fresh faith. So what I wanna do today is I want to define what the kingdom of God is. I want to explain to you why the kingdom of God is the central focal point of how to create fresh faith. And then I wanna give you three pillars that the kingdom of God stands on. And that's really my goal for today. So if we're gonna talk about the kingdom of God, we need to know what it is. Because when we think kingdom, we think united kingdom. We think queens and kings and we live in America where we have guns and freedom and we don't have to worry about no queen. We have like freedom here. That's not what I'm talking about. Not that kind of kingdom. And I've been researching and studying and kind of looking into what the kingdom of God is over the past couple of months. And I found there's a variety of definitions, variety of ways you can describe it. But the best, most simplistic way that I can give to you to explain to you what the kingdom of God is today is this the kingdom of God is the rule and reign of God over his creation, that the kingdom of God is God ruling and reigning over all creation. And when I mean all creation, I mean, not only the universe, not only the nature, not only our space and reality, but your life as well. You're a part of God's creation. In fact, God knit you together in your mother's womb. So the way you look, the personality you have, your quirks, those were all intricately designed by God, the creator of the universe. In fact, if you were to ask me, Preston, how would you sum up the Bible in a very short sentence? I could sum up the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one phrase that's three words long, God with us. That the whole story of the Bible is the beautiful story of God trying to dwell among His people and trying to reconcile back what was lost in the Garden of Eden. So let's just go through it really quick. I won't take all day. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in perfect harmony with God was broken by sin. What happens? God then tries to fix what is broken. He, he comes to Abraham who he promised your star, your, your, your descendants will outnumber the stars that you see in the sky. But Abraham and Sarah had a hard time conceiving. So God came down in human form, entered into Abraham's house and sat with Abraham and said, I have good news for you, brother. It's time for Sarah to conceive a child. You've been trying, but now is the time for the promise to come to fruition. Of course, we know the story, Sarah laughs at God, but God is coming and dwelling among Abraham to deliver this news. Fast forward to Exodus, God shows up in the form of a burning bush to Moses and says, it's time to lead the people out of Egypt. It's time to go into the promised land. So he leads them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And then when they get in the wilderness, they don't know which way to go. So God comes and he comes as a cloud by day to lead the way and a pillar of fire by night to lead the way to where they should go. They get into the promised land and then God establishes a temple and a tabernacle, which is a physical building that God's presence would reside in, that he would be encamped in the nation of Israel, that his presence would be something they could come to every day. Then they have kings and they have prophets that God sends to deliver the message of hope, the message of of the Messiah to the people to say, I know things are bad, but there's the Messiah coming to save you. Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus' name Emmanuel means God with us. God is now here. Jesus is crucified, he's raised again, he ascends into heaven and then God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell every believer so that God is now indwelling our lives and our hearts on a daily basis. And there will come a time again that God will come and rule and reign on the earth forevermore. The whole story of the Bible is God's ferocious passion after being a part of your life. God is so desperately in love with you that the whole story of the Bible paints the picture that God cares about you, that God is for you, that God is constantly trying to be a part of your life, a part of your triumphs, a part of your pain, to dwell in your life, good and bad, that God is the creator of the universe and he cares for his creation so much so that he'd be willing to die for it. I wanna show you a passage of scripture from Colossians 1 that will really uh, tell you a little bit more about what it means when God rules and reigns. I won't spend too much time on it. Paul says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He goes on to say, he is before all things and by all things hold together. Remember that phrase. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have a place in everything, in everything. Here's the great part about the God of the Bible. God is not only the creator of everything, he is the sustainer of everything. Look at that phrase, all things are held together by his hand, which means God doesn't create the universe and create you and wipe his hands clean and step back and say, hope you can figure out a way to make life great. Hope you can find a way to come back to me. Hope you can find a way to reverse the mess that you've caused. No, God creates, but he's actively involved. He's actively sustaining every breath you have, every second you're given, is God sustaining your life for another moment. He is actively involved in your life and in the sustaining of all creation. And the kingdom of God is saying, this is the kind of God that is leading our world and leading our lives, a God who cares, a God who is for us, a God who is sustaining all things until the time will come that he'll return. So this is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about God's rule and reign over all creation, including you and I in our lives, that God cares for his people, So the question becomes, I know many of you hear that and you're like, cool Preston, that's a cool little theology lesson and we appreciate it. Maybe I'll remember that one day. I don't know how that applies to my life. What does the kingdom of God and how I just described it have anything to do with the faith crisis that we're experiencing in our own lives today? I wanna humbly put before you that everything I described about the kingdom of God has everything to do with your faith crisis. It actually has everything to do with how you create and sustain fresh faith. Because here's why if God is for you, then the commands of God are meant to make your life flourishing and full of joy and full of growth and full of peace. So if God is for us, then the commands of God are not for our depression or for our uh, just, I don't know, destruction, but God's. Commands are for our joy and for our betterment and for our flourishing. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew seven. He says this kind of towards the end, he's closing his sermon on the mount, and He says this, many of you I'm sure have heard this, these verses before. He says, enter through the narrow gates for the gate is wide that leads to destruction and there are many that go through it. However, there's a narrow gate and difficult the way that leads to life and few people find it. Few people find it. If God is for you, what God would have you do or not do is actually for your joy and for your peace and for your betterment. But I've found that in our culture and in my life too, this is in my life too, we will believe one of two lies about God's commands that will completely ruin how we see God, completely ruin how we see the church, completely ruin how we understand our faith if we believe these things. So lie lie number one is that God's word makes life miserable. That I understand God says to do these certain things, but it really sounds like he's trying to suck the fun out of my life that I understand I should be giving my tithe, I should be giving my money. But if I'm honest, I'd rather save that money so I can get a boat. I'd rather save that money so I can retire two years earlier. I can really, I know God says that marriage should be this way and that me and my wife should be faithful to one another. But if I'm honest, Pastor, like I like having options. I like having the the options to do what I want and see who I want and hang out with who I want and sleep with, with who I want. God's commands seem like they're really just trying to suck the fun out of my life. And if we're not careful, that's how we'll see God's word. That it is here to make our lives miserable. Sure, we'll be holy people that stand before God and says, I'm doing what you said, but we will hate our lives. That's why I'm trying to explain to you before we go any further, that God's word is not meant to tell you, go down the narrow path so you can live a miserable life, but go down the narrow path because this is the path to life. I am the God who created all things. I know how the world works and I know which path leads to life. And I know which path leads to destruction. Jesus said this about God's command in John 12. And I love what he says. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. I love that line because that's the kind of God Jesus is. He's not here to judge you. He's here to save you. The one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. He goes on to say, for I have not spoken on my own but the father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the father has told me. Jesus is telling his people the commands of God are leading you to life and life abundantly, life to the fullest, life full of flourishing, life rooted in joy, life marked by peace are all found in God's commands. That God's commands are beautiful. They're meant to make our life joyful. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible is a whole chapter devoted to the beauty of God's word. God's word and his commands are meant to lead us to betterment, not to destruction, not to holiness, not to begrudging submission where we'll do what God says, but we'll complain along the way about how we have to do it. God's not interested in your begrudging submission. He's not interested in you in following this so that you can be holy, but you hate it the whole way. He wants you to love his commands and love following them because you know the path that's leading you down leads to life. That's lie number one, if we're not careful. Lie number two, which I think is honestly probably more prevalent where we live today. And and, and we'll see it time and time again is that God's word is outdated or incomplete. And and I think it's hard for us to grasp this sometimes because we we really have to sit down to be honest. If we were honest with ourselves, and maybe this just says more about people than it says about you personally, that we'll look at God's word and we'll say, I like parts of it. But there are some parts, if I was really honest with God, I would wanna sit across from a table and have a PR meeting because some of this just doesn't fly in in 2022, right? I, I like the part God in Romans 8, 1, you said, there are no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's keep that, like, that's good. That'll draw people in the door. That'll make people follow you right there. That's a good line. Let's keep that. I like when you say all things work together for the good of those who love you. Let's keep that too. Like that's gonna draw a crowd. Like that's gonna make people wanna follow you. That's a good God. I like the verse where you say, your grace and mercy meet me fresh every morning. and Your forgiveness stretches as far as East is from the West. Keep that. Okay, now this part about about giving, God, gas is $5 a gallon. I don't know if you know that, but like, like I ain't got time or money to, to give to the church. I'm trying to get to work. God, this part about marriage and sexuality, that's way out of touch with 2022. Let's let's do Bible 2.0. Let's make some revisions here. If you're interested in people following you, God, we've got to make some revisions because some of this doesn't fly in 2022. But God's word is not outdated, nor is it incomplete. It is fully perfect and it is fully God's truth for your life. And we cannot believe the lie that God's word is good in some areas, but out of touch with reality in the other because God knows all things and sees all things and knows what's good for your life for the first century Jews and for the 21st century Americans. He knows what's good for you and He knows what's good for me. Now, if I'm not careful as the person who someone stupidly gave a microphone to today, I can lead you in a direction that's not good for you. So I I wanna make a clarification. And I'm gonna show you a quote by Eugene Peterson, who's the author of the message commentary on the Bible. And he says it probably better than I could ever say what I'm trying to say about God's word, because it's really going to clarify what I'm trying to say. He says this, Scripture does not present a moral code and tell us live up to this, nor does it set out a system and doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. Rather, the biblical way is to tell a story and then telling the story, invite people, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in the God made and God ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. God is not saying, follow my commands so you can have a good life. Follow my word so that you can live well. Believe the right theology so you can be a good Christian. That is not what I'm saying and that is not what God's word is saying. God's word is saying, I have designed the world to work, to flourish, this way live into what it means to be a true God made God's image bearer human and see that your life will flourish not that there won't be rocky times but that you'll learn to flourish in spite of rocky times that God is saying live into this way of life for your good for your betterment not for a comfortable life but for a flourishing life this is what it means to follow God and to create a flourishing faith. The kingdom of God and the King we serve and how He chooses to rule and reign over our lives in a personal way has everything to do with how we grow spiritually because we trust the Word of God is good for us. It's like you parents in the room. You could tell your kid, don't touch the hot stove. Well, why? You just wanna suck the fun out of my life. No, I I don't want you to have third degree burns, dude. Like trust me as your good father that I know what is good for you. And God's saying, don't touch that. Don't go that way. Don't burn yourself. I know what's good. You don't pursue that, pursue this. And we're trying to make God as this fun sucking leech monster when in reality he's trying to protect us and lead us to paths of righteousness and flourishing lives. So this is what the kingdom of God is. And this is how the kingdom of God operates. And in detail we'll go into over the next five weeks, how specific aspects of the kingdom of God will really impact how you grow your faith. But I won't touch on those today. So I wanna transition now into the three pillars that the kingdom of God stands on. And I don't get these from a book. I haven't heard these in the sermon. I haven't even, for the most part, researched too much if these are the three pillars of God's kingdom. So if you feel like this is heresy at some point, you can post it on Facebook and tag me in the post so I can read your post about how I led people down the wrong path, it's fine. But this is, in my opinion, what the kingdom of God is about and what the kingdom of God stands for on a daily basis. So these are the three pillars and I'll just start with the first one. The first one is this, fulfillment, is found in Christ, in Christ alone. That true fulfillment is found only in Jesus. You've heard the saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But I would dare say that 99.9% of the problems you and I are facing today stem from a heart that is not truly satisfied in what Jesus has done for us. Your marriage may not be totally a wreck because your husband's doing something he shouldn't or your wife's not doing what God has told her to do, but maybe it's because you're looking for your husband and wife to fulfill something in you that they were never meant to satisfy. The whole rom-com sham of I complete you, you complete me, isn't how our faith works. And this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't work on your marriage, don't work through things, just be satisfied in Christ and let your husband cheat and who cares, just be satisfied in Christ, live a crappy marriage, but enjoy Christ, that's not what I'm saying. We do need to work on our marriages. We do need to work together on making a better partnership. However, you can have the best wife this world's ever seen, the most faithful husband you've ever known, and yet still be unsatisfied in your marriage because you're looking for your partner to satisfy you in ways only Jesus was designed to satisfy you. And we cannot allow the world to convince us that we can get true satisfaction and true fulfillment from anyone, anything, or any person other than Jesus. It's why it, the, the church is going through such an identity crisis. Right? I would tell people that the church has issues. There are pastors around the world that have dropped the ball, that have made mistakes, but partly the big reason people distrust church and don't like the church now is because if we're honest, we're putting pastors on pedestals they don't need to be on in our minds. Pastors are not meant to be what it looks like to be an epitome of, of, of a Christian. I'll say before you and everyone watching online, do not look to me as the example of what it means to follow Christ. I'm a broken man, I lose my temper, I say things I shouldn't, I make mistakes, I do the wrong things. If you're looking to me to be the epitome of what it looks like to be a faithful Christ follower, I am gonna disappoint you on a daily basis. Do not put me on a pedestal next to Christ. The only person who knows and can show you what it means to be a Christ follower is Jesus himself. Look to him, don't put me up there, don't put Scott up there. But when we put our spouse, our work, our pastors on a pedestal, Do not be surprised when every day you're met with constant disappointment and constant dissatisfaction because we were never meant to be on a pedestal next to Christ. Christ is perfect, look to Him, be fulfilled in Him, in Him alone. There's a passage of scripture in John 4, Jesus says this to the woman at the well, he says, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Look at the contraction again, we talked about the wide path and the narrow path earlier. The well that the world offers, you drink it and the next day you come back thirsty. It doesn't satisfy long-term. The well that Christ offers is an everlasting water that once you drink it once, you will never thirst again. True fulfillment that never comes back, never the needs that never come back are found in God's fulfillment for you. And the reality is I think why we have such a tough time finding true fulfillment in Christ and Christ alone is because we are such a blessed people in America. We have more money, we have more technology, we have more access to things that we need or want. I would dare say the only thing you cannot buy in this world, the only thing you cannot work hard enough to achieve, the only thing you can't gain through social status or knowing the right political people is your salvation. And so we look at Jesus and we say, Can I get my get out of hell free card? And he gives us the get out of hell free card and we never go back to Jesus for any other needs because every other need in our life, we try to satisfy with money, people or purpose. And God is saying, come to me for all your needs. Don't come to me just so I can give you salvation and rescue you from your sin. But notice that your marriage, that need you're feeling can be found in me. The the promotion that was passed up on you and you feel like you're not valued at work, you can find value in me. But we come to God only for our get out of hell free card, but we don't come to him for anything else. And if you want to know what the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God says all desires, all longings, all needs are found perfectly and fully in Jesus and no one else and no other thing. But we have to come to Jesus to receive that satisfaction, not others. This is the first pillar that I believe the kingdom of God is built on. The second pillar, which I believe is probably, I won't say one's more better than the other, one's more important than the other, but this one I really feel like is, if we grasp this, the others will fall in place. The second pillar is purpose is found in humility. Purpose is found in humility, that your life and my life is not about you. That if you want purpose in life, it starts when you're willing to lay your life down and pick up your cross that if you want to find purpose for your life, you need to start by saying, my life is not about my needs, my wants, my desires, but about the person next to me wants and desires. And we're so convinced that if we want purpose, we have to achieve a certain social status, a certain tax bracket, a certain marriage, that when we get those things, we will find purpose. And all we have to do is work hard enough and we'll get those things, then I'll have meaning, then I'll have purpose in my life. And God is flipping that upside down and saying, if you want to find purpose in your life, be willing to lose your life and lay it down at the cross and humble yourself and pick it up and become a servant for those next to you, even the ones you feel like don't deserve to be served. The, the problem with humility is that it somewhat seems, it somewhat seems like very up in the air. Like that's cool in theory, Preston, but living a humble life like you're describing isn't practical. I have a family to feed, I have a job to go to, I got debt to pay off, I got a marriage to fix. And you're telling me that those needs don't matter. That's not what I'm saying. Your needs do matter, but they don't matter more and most importantly, above the needs of people around you. And I know that sounds very countercultural, but let me tell you this humility, as C.S. Lewis said, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And so if you want to live a humble life, think of yourself less, not don't think of yourself. Obviously you have needs that you need to do and you need to fulfill and you need to work towards, but don't think of them as more important than the person next to you. And I wanna read you a passage of scripture that I'll put on the screen. And this passage of scripture transformed how I understood humility and it transformed how I understood my life. And there are times that I don't even truly, I would say live into this perfectly as a failed human being, but these verses will truly radically transform how you see your faith. So let's look at them together. Philippians 2, verses five through eight, Paul says this adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a king, right? No, a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. I want you to focus in on the underlying words while I I explain a little bit about what this verse is saying. No one in this world, no one who's ever existed, no one that exists now and no one that ever exists will ever have an out on having to humble themselves. However, the only person that should and could have an out on being humble is Jesus because Jesus is perfect. He's lived a perfect life. He has all authority over all creation. As we described at the beginning of this message, if anyone deserved to come on the scene and look at people and say, you will bow before me, you will worship me. Rome, you're out of here. I'm taking over the government. I'm leading this land. You're done. I'm coming in and I'm demanding worship. If anyone has the right to do that, it's God and Jesus. But he didn't. He came as a servant. And he chose to humble himself so that he could serve the least of these. So that he could set an example for how you and I should live. I can't tell you that you need to live a humble life and I can't make you live a humble life. The reality is you can walk out of here and make life all about you. I'm not gonna stop you. I can't tell you not to, I can't like make you forcibly stop living a prideful life. But I will tell you based on those verses right there, you cannot stand before people and say, I'm living a life that's all about me. And at the same breath say that you follow Jesus. They're completely opposite. If you want to follow Jesus, you are gonna to have to commit yourself to humbling yourself and putting others needs above your own because that's what he did. And that's the example he set when he didn't even have to do that. So if you wanna live a life all about you, go ahead, but don't claim to follow Christ in the same breath because being a prideful human being is in contrast directly to the life that Jesus lived in the gospel that we believe in as a church. So humility is the key, factor to finding your purpose. You want to know what your purpose is, is on this earth, learn to serve the least of these. Jesus washed the feet of Peter who hours later would deny him three times. He washed the feet of Judas the night before that, literally within the next hour would go and turn him in for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus washed the feet. He washed the feet, if we're honest, of people we would say didn't deserve it, but Jesus washed their feet and washed them in humility. You were not above the example set by your Lord and by your master. You want purpose, humble yourself. Number three, the last pillar that the kingdom of God is really built on and held up by is that joy is found in suffering. Notice I didn't say happiness. Happiness and joy are not the same things. Happiness depends on happenings. What's happening in my life right now determines how happy I am. My marriage is good, I'm happy. It's not good, I'm not happy. My family finances are in order, I'm happy. They're not in order, I'm not happy. I got the promotion, I'm happy. I didn't get the promotion, I'm not happy. My kids are the perfect day students, I'm happy. They're like literally begging me to pick them up every day at school at 10 a.m. Like I'm not happy. Happiness and joy are the same things. Joy is a rooted sense of peace that we can have no matter what comes our way, no matter what we face. You want joy, you're gonna find it most evidently in suffering and you and I live in a world that will tell us the best life you can live is the life rid of suffering. The most comfortable life is the best life and I'm here to tell you that is not the way to growth. That is not the way to fresh faith. You want to have joy. You want to grow. You need to lean in to suffering. I'm not saying if your life is comfortable right now, go out and find ways to suffer, like cut off your power and just live without power. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, do not be surprised when suffering comes and don't run away from it, lean into it, value and lean into God in the times of suffering so that you know that God is real and that God is for you. And the reality is you'll never be able to appreciate God's promises promises, or experience joy if you wanna stay on the mountaintop 24 seven. If you want joy, you need to go in the valley. You need to suffer a little bit, not intentionally, but you need to lean into the suffering and see that there's a purpose behind it. There's a hope beyond it. There's a God in the midst of it next to you in the suffering. Don't run from it. Don't try to make your life as comfortable as possible so you never have to feel pain again. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus suffered, but he suffered with joy. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. I love these two verses. He says, let us run the race with endurance, the race set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith for the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus considered it a joy to die for you. Not that he got on the cross and he didn't feel pain, not that he was laughing and joking and singing hymns back to God while he was being nailed to a cross and crucified and died for you. It hurt, it immensely hurt. But Jesus saw it as a joy to die for you, to suffer for you, why? Because he saw what was on the other side of it. He saw the hope, the reconciliation that would come through his sacrifice and his resurrection. He knew where God was leading him past the cross and Jesus considered it a joy to suffer. Do not be surprised when suffering comes, but consider it a joy to suffer. Lean in to God, lean into his promises, rely on God in the midst of the valley so that when you do come back on the mountaintops, you can appreciate all the things that God has given you. You can have joy both in the greatest seasons of life and the lowest seasons of life. There is a purpose beyond your suffering but you must learn to have joy in the midst of suffering. And this is the kingdom of God. These are the pillars that God's kingdom is built on. And if I was painting a picture very bad because I can't paint of a house, the house has the foundation on it. And I hope what you'll see from all three of these pillars is that Jesus personified and showed an example of all three of them. Fulfillment in God and God alone and humbling himself and suffering for our joy. I hope that you see that Jesus is the example of all three of these things come to life. So in the picture of a house, the foundation is Jesus and his work and his death and his resurrection, the gospel and Jesus is our foundation. And on top of the foundation rest three pillars that stem from Jesus's example. If you want to live a flourishing life, Live in the kingdom of God. Don't live in the kingdom of you. Don't pursue the wide path that culture will tell you is the right way to go, but pursue the uncommon path that God says leads to your betterment. Learn to trust and lean on the God of the Bible, not on the God of the culture. There is purpose in your suffering. There is purpose to be found in humbling yourself and there is satisfaction to be found in Jesus and his work for you and his work alone. You want to grow fresh faith, lean into the kingdom know that He's there, know that He's wanting you to flourish. There's a God of the universe who desperately wants you to grow, but we've got to choose the narrow path. We've got to be about the things that He has told us to be about. And if we're not, don't be surprised when things go awry. Culture will tell you, you want to be successful, you want to grow, make life about you, pursue having a good job, pursue having a great marriage and pursue all these things. And while I will say those are things that you should be looking to have, they're not wrong, They will not give you purpose, they will not give you meaning, and they do not lead to growth all the time. The truth is true growth is found in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. And may we seek to be citizens that live faithfully within those realms and in those walls that He set up for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you that not only did He come to die for us, God, but He set an example of what it means to live faithfully by your commands, by your words. May we seek to be those people, those men and women, God. And with me first, may I seek to be that person. May I seek to seek the things you tell me to pursue. And may I be able to hopefully do the best I can. And may we be able to pursue a life that has meaning and has purpose. But would we choose, God, give us the courage, give us the strength to every day choose the narrow path and to walk away from the wide path that leads to destruction, that there is a backwards method to grace. And may we pursue walking backwards and going against the stream for the sake of our flourishment, for the sake of our families, for the sake of our community. Would we not only seek to grow our faith, God, but be examples that would grow the faith of the people around us and be faithful to your mission, be faithful to your kingdom. We pray it in your name, amen. A couple of announcements really quick before they open the doors and let you go, just three real quick. Number one is uh, if you're a first time guest, I'd love to meet you at the New Here area on the way out. I just love to talk to you more about what Forest Park, is about what we do. Uh, Number two is that we are continuing the series for the whole month of May. I I hope that you'd invite people, you'd come and be a part of seeing what the kingdom of God is about in a very specific manner. Pastor Scott's back with us next week. So we're excited that he'll lead part two. And then number three is this Tuesday from seven to eight, we have our sanctuary gathering here at Forest Park. That's our stripped down acoustic worship set where we come in, the band plays and sings. We just kind of sit, meditate, sing, journal. We take communion together. It's really great hour for you to come in if you're overwhelmed, breathe soak in God's presence, sing together, take communion. I would hope that you consider being here this Tuesday night, seven to 8 p.m. for our sanctuary gathering. Um, But other than that, guys, I love you guys. Have a great Sunday.